Did you know that the average depth of the ocean is uh, 12,100 feet? That's the average depth of the ocean. So if you were to take, you know, from the, from the part where you can get in at the shore, that's just ankle deep, all the way to the deepest parts of the ocean, the average depth is 12,100 feet. That comes out to be about 4,033 yards, or maybe easily understood, more easily understood, 2.3 miles. That's the average depth of the ocean. Pretty deep, 2.3 miles. To put that in perspective, the tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Uh, it stands at 2,717 feet tall. If you took four and a half of these and stacked them on top of each other, that is the average depth of the ocean. Four and a half Burj Khalifa stacked, stacked on top of each other. That's the average depth, pretty, pretty deep. Again though, this is just the average depth of the ocean. The deepest part of the ocean, looked this up this week, is called the Challenger Deep. And it's located off the southern end of the Mariana Trench. And it's estimated to be about 35,876 feet deep. Again, if you could hear that over my daughter screaming, it's 35,876 feet deep. So that equates to about 6.8 miles is the deepest part of the ocean, 6.8 miles. I don't know where that would be from here to somewhere in Mobile, but 6.8 miles deep. To put that into perspective, Mount Everest, all right? Mount Everest is the next picture here, stands at 29,032 feet tall. Huge, right? If, that, if we were to put the uh, Mount Everest at the bottom of the Challenger Deep, at the very bottom on, on the, the ground there on the bottom, the ocean floor, it would still be covered by over a mile of water in the Challenger Deep. Super deep waters there. Um, I tried to look this week. There's a lot of uh, differing opinions on this somehow or different numbers on this. Uh, about There actually have been people who have made expeditions into the Challenger Deep, this super deep part of the ocean, the deepest part of the ocean. I saw a website that said three people have tried it. I saw one that said like 17 and one that it said like 22 people had tried it before. The point is, in the span of human history, billions and billions of people have lived, right? And very few have ever even tried to go down into the Challenger Deep to, 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 to those depths, to thousands of feet deep, to 6.8 miles deep. You want to know what you find down there? This next picture. Darkness, nothing, really. Um, you just find darkness. The sun can't reach down there. The, the, the sun rays really not even close to getting down to this point. It's pitch black because we're so far down, not really much is down there. No, nothing can really live. Now, there actually are some organisms that can live down here. Very few, though. It's nothing like what you find up top, you know, you know like fish and sharks and whales and all that type of stuff. They don't make it this deep. They can't survive in, in the, this environment. It's very high pressure. The further you go down, the higher the pressure and the, the colder it gets. Very few organisms can live in this environment. But you know what else is down here? Sin. Sin's down here in the depths. 
And you may be thinking, what are you talking about? Well, look at the end of the book of Micah. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Now, obviously, there are not sins literally floating around in the challenger deep in the deepest parts of the ocean. The idea here is that God removes our sins so far from us and so far from him to never be brought up again. He forgives us. When he forgives us of our sins, we're forgiven. Those, it's like our sins are cast into the deepest parts of the earth where no one can access them Well, no one will get to them. That's how God deals with our sins. He treads them, he runs over them, and then he casts them into the depths of the sea. Why? Because God is a forgiving God. He doesn't hold our our sins against us. When we come to him in obedient faith, when we give our lives over to him, and we're washed by his son's blood, our sins are washed away. And he cast our sins into the depths of the sea. It's an amazing thing. The psalmist put it in a, a similar way, but a little bit different, that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's Psalm 103. East and west will never touch. If you start going in an eastwardly direction, you'll always be going east. If you go west, you're always going to be going west. They don't meet. And so it's like God throws the sins one way, and they just keep going. They're never to be caught again. That's how God deals with his children. He has compassion. He, He treads our sins underfoot and casts them into the depths of the sea. It's an amazing thing that we see in the book of Micah. Of all places, typically we think about, you know, the the New Testament only where we see a lot of forgiveness from God. But it's all throughout the Old Testament. We'll come back to that idea here in a few minutes too. Now, the, the book ends this way. But since God is forgiving, that means there had to have been some type of sin going on that needed to be forgiven, right? Where forgiveness is, there had to have been some type of transgression that needed to be forgiven. And certainly... I don't want to belabor this point because we've talked about this particularly with, uh, with Amos and with some other of the prophets that we've gone over. But look at this list of sins that Micah addresses throughout this book. Again, we've talked about some of these. We're not going to talk about each and every one of these. But throughout this book, Micah uncovers sins of God's people, both the, uh, the northern and the southern kingdom. Idolatry in chapter 1-7 planning sin he says that they're laying in their beds and planning sin it's not that they're just accidentally slipping upon it no they're planning it at night and they're carrying it out the next day deliberate willful sin covetousness taking things by force or robbery mistreating people we talked about this in amos how there was a large injustice going on against the poor and against those who were less fortunate and micah touches on some of these things as well Corrupt leadership, that's chapter 3, the whole chapter. Deception going on. Violence is going on. And this is not an exhaustive list, by the way. These are just some of the things that I went through and and kind of saw uh, as I was reading through this and then some other uh, commentaries picked out. The point is, sin was rampant amongst God's people. 
the one thing I do want to highlight about this is chapter 3, corrupt leadership. If you've got your Bibles, you can go to Micah chapter 3. This really dovetails nicely with what David talked about this morning with leadership. God has always had people who were in charge to, to lead, uh, even with his children Israel. And of course in the church today, that's what David talked about this morning. But when you get to Micah chapter 3, and you see some bad corruption from Israel's leaders. Look at what said, this is the entire chapter. And I said, hear now heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones and chop them up as the pot and as meat in a kettle. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious, to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Now hear this heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. That's the entire chapter. I think you can see clearly just how corrupt the leaders had become in Israel. He calls out the, the rulers and the heads at, in the first several verses. And it seems that he's talking about the, the heads of the tribes and the heads of the families within the tribes in the first several verses. And these guys... Instead of leading people gently, they're violent. They're harsh towards the people. Not only that, it says that uh, they practice evil deeds. They hate good and love evil, and they twist everything that is right. The very people who are supposed to be teaching the people and, and instructing them in the correct ways, they're twisting everything. They're violent. They're corrupt. They're hurting the people. It's as if they're chopping people up and skinning people, is how Micah puts it really kind of a vivid imagery here of how horrible these leaders were being to the people. And also it says they only judge if they were bribed. It's like, hey, only if you can bribe me with something am I going to give you a, a good judgment here. I mean, it's just corruption everywhere. Then he calls out the prophets. He says the prophets are leading the people astray. And they basically he says if the prophets would receive something from somebody, like if they put food in their mouths, or gave them some money, well, then they'd, they'd prophesy for them. But if they got nothing from them, they declared holy war against them. I mean, they were opposed to the people who wouldn't provide something for them in return for their prophecies. And Isaiah or Micah basically says, I'm an actual prophet. I've got the spirit of the Lord in me, and I'll just say what he tells me to say. And that's what a true prophet does. He's going to speak God's words, even if it's hard. 
He says, I'm going to tell the rebellious acts of Jacob, because that's what I've been told to say. These other prophets were really false prophets, not helping the people. And he calls out the priest as well. Um, he says that each of them only instruct at a cost, at a price. In essence, if, if they've got their pockets lined, then they'll, they'll teach. But if that's not the case, they won't. And here's the thing. God had, had made prescriptions in the law for the priest and the Levites to be taken care of, to have plenty. I don't know if that's not, not happening now, if they cease to do that. But these priests were only instructing for a price. You can see the selfishness and the evil of the rulers of Israel. But you notice what it says at the end there? Even amidst all their corruption, they say, you know what? We're good. Isn't God in our midst? Nothing bad's going to happen to us. We're going to be just fine. And Micah says, absolutely not. He says, Zion is going to be plowed as a field. Jerusalem is going to become a heap of ruins because of you. Because of you leading people astray, there's coming judgment. There's going, to be a, there's going to be punishment. Don't think you can escape this. So a couple of things I want to point out about this for application. With any leadership position comes great, great responsibility. With any leadership position comes great responsibility, but especially a leadership position within the church, with, um, among God's people. And I'm not just talking about elders, deacons, or ministers. There are other leadership positions that some may take on, leading some type of, of ministry that we have going on here. There's great responsibility when you have leadership. By implication, if there's a leader, there has to be followers. If you don't have followers, then there, there really is no leader there. And if you're a leader, you have people following you. They're looking up to you. That, there's influence by nature, leadership is influence. And if we are leading people astray, or we're not leading people on the right paths, that's not good. God takes that very seriously when leaders don't, are not leading the way that they should. Leading people on the right paths, the correct paths, being gentle like a gentle shepherd, like David talked about this morning. God takes that very, very seriously. And Israel's, Israel's leaders were called shepherds many times throughout the Old Testament. And they're called out here for not being what they should have been, shepherds. They weren't leading the people. They're being harsh to the people. They're hurting the people. And so if we find ourselves in any type of leadership position, we have to understand the great responsibility that's found there. And even in a personal level with somebody, trying to lead somebody to Christ, We've got to be so careful with that, with our influence, not to lead people astray. We've got to be very careful with our influence. Also, ignoring and continuing in sin results in grave consequences. These leaders were saying, nah, nothing's going to happen to us. I can just keep lining my pockets. I can just keep being harsh and violent. I can just keep twisting things. It'll be just fine because God's with us. Micah says, no, that's not true. God's not with you. In fact, God is going to let you suffer because of your corrupt leadership. And that's exactly what happened. Both Israel and Judah both suffered. And the leaders, folks, the leaders obviously lead the people. And most of the time, as a leader goes, so go the people. Generally speaking, now I know there's some exceptions there, maybe not every single person, but generally speaking, as the, elder, as the leaders go, so go the people. If you've got corrupt leadership, you're going to have corrupt people. 
Look at, look at any type of world government today, just about, right? But if we continue in sin and ignore it and think, oh, no, we'll be blessed anyways, it's no problem, we're, we're fooling ourselves. God is a forgiving God, a compassionate God, but you know what else he is? He's a just God. And at some point, we can't just continue ignoring sin. And sometimes I think we can do that on a personal level even and think, I'm fine, you know, just let the sin continue. It results in grave consequences. And I'm not saying that, you know, God's going to strike you down or anything like that, but there are consequences for our sins. And we have to be so very careful, especially if we find ourselves in a leadership position. So I did want to highlight that because that's something that we haven't really covered yet, the corruption of leadership amongst Israel's leaders. Now, even in the midst of so much sin and judgment, Micah has so many vivid pictures of hope. And this is where we want to, to finish out tonight, is talking about the hope that Micah points to. Now, I know a lot of prophets do this, minor prophets do this, but Micah is so vivid in the picture that he gives us of coming hope. It's beautiful. We want to look at chapter 4, and he prophesies about the coming kingdom. Look what he says in chapter 4. Again, amidst all the sin and all the punishment that's going to happen, hope is going to come. God's given you a hope. He's going to restore you. Look what it says in chapter 4. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say... Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord into the house of the God of Jacob, that we, he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That at the end of chapter 3, he's saying, hey, Jerusalem's going to be plowed, and it's going to just become a heap of ruins. But then we get this passage about the coming kingdom in the last days. A lot of people like to point to, you know, there's going to be a day when Jesus Christ come back, comes back and reigns for a thousand years. And that's simply not the case. That's not what's being referred to here. I believe we can clearly see in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he's preaching this sermon and he quotes the book of Joel, right? And what does he say? In the last days I will pour forth my spirit. That's what he says in that sermon in Acts chapter 2. He's quoting from Joel. He says, in the last days I will pour forth my spirit. And what Peter's saying is, hey, that's right now. This is happening. The spirit's been poured forth. And so the last days started then. And we are in the last days now. The last period of human history, the last dispensation where God has revealed himself and anybody can become a part of, of his church, a part of his body, a part of his everlasting kingdom. And at any moment, God could come back like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to be, but we are in the last days right now. And some people kind of have this hard, try, 
try to make this a, a difficult thing to understand, but we're in the last days. We're in this last period of human history. And you look, you think about Pentecost and the, the, the words that are said here, that people are going to flow to Jerusalem, to Zion, and hear the word of the Lord. It happened there. Remember, devout Jews from every nation under heaven came there and heard Peter preach the word. And then what happened? They all went out and the word spread from Jerusalem, went to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And people came from all over the place. Jews and Gentile alike became a part of this kingdom. And that's what Micah's prophesying about. Is this the church, God's kingdom, that's going to be an everlasting kingdom. And what he says there, um, it'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. That really reminded me of Daniel chapter 2. When Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this statue... And Daniel interprets it, and he basically says, okay, what's going to happen is all these kingdoms are going to come after you, Nebuchadnezzar. But at the end of that dream, a rock shatters this statue. And the rock becomes this mountain that fills the entire world. And look what Daniel says in Daniel 2.44. It won't be up here on the screen. I've missed putting this in here. But he says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for the, another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. God's kingdom, the church, has lasted. Kingdoms have risen and fallen, but the church has not. And the word of God is still sounding forth today. We just sang the song, Send the Light. We're still carrying the message to people. And people are still coming into God's kingdom. It's an amazing thing that this kingdom is going to last for eternity. We can count on that. And that's what Micah is prophesying about here. This kingdom that was going to come, and it started in Acts chapter 2, and it's continued on to today, and it will continue on for all eternity. I love that. For a large part of this chapter, we see peace that God's kingdom brings, talking about they're going to hammer their weapons into plowshares, and everybody's going to sit under their own vine. I love what... Homer Haley says here, the prophet here is describing the nature and character of the kingdom ruled from this spiritual Zion. The kingdom of the latter days would not, would not be established, defended, or extended by carnal weapons and means. Force can have no place in a spiritual kingdom. Jesus made this clear when he said, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Jesus' kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. This is not an earthly kingdom that we were going to fight for, like physically with swords and all this stuff. No, it's a kingdom of peace, a peaceful kingdom ruled by a peaceful God, a peaceful shepherd. And Micah prophesies about this hundreds of years before this stuff happens in Acts chapter 2. Anyway, hundreds of years before Jesus comes along. I want to look at one more prophecy. It's in the next chapter. Very vivid prophecy, and you're going to know it as soon as we start reading it. But look at Micah chapter 5. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. 
and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. When you read this, you have to automatically think about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, right? That's exactly where my mind went to, and that's exactly what's happening here. Because when, when the Magi were looking for Jesus, the wise men, remember? They come to Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, where is he that we can worship him? And Herod starts getting nervous. Herod's like, wait, a, a, a king? Another king? Where's this king supposed to be born? Look what's look what said in Matthew 2, 4 through 6. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, and they're quoting this passage we just read, In Bethlehem of Judah, for this has what been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler, ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they knew it. The, the scribes and the, the priests, they knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And that's exactly what Micah prophesied hundreds of years before this happens. This is amazing that some 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem by the Virgin Mary, Micah saying, yes, there's going to be a time of suffering and exile, but there's coming a king. There's coming a ruler out of Bethlehem. This small, really uh, not really impressive place, but out of that's going to arise the most important person who's ever lived, a ruler. And notice how Micah describes him. His goings forth are from eternity. This is no normal person, right? Although he would rise from Bethlehem, this is, a, this is an eternal being. And isn't that exactly who Jesus is? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is an eternal being. And hundreds of years before Jesus comes along, Micah prophesies about him. That he's going to come and he's going to shepherd his people. And as David talked about this morning, he's the good shepherd. In contrast to the leaders that we just talked about a few minutes ago who were corrupt and who were violent, not Jesus. He's a gentle shepherd who leads his people in the right paths, the paths of righteousness. And hundreds of years before this happens... Micah's prophesying about it. Now, another passage of hope, we won't read this because we already covered it, is that passage of forgiveness, how Micah ends this book, talking about how God forgives our sins and our iniquities and is compassionate towards us. So a way of application as we close from what we've just talked about here, from the hope that God gives. I just want to point this out. God is still the same God. God has always been and always will be the same God. You know, I kind of mentioned this earlier. A lot of people uh, like to come to the Bible and try to say, uh, you know, as a, as a way to basically th- say it's a contradiction and things like that and try to undermine it. They say, you know what, God's different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. They say in the Old Testament, he's really, you know, he's, he's kind of like a tyrant. He just strikes people down everywhere. But in the New Testament, they say it changes, you know. That couldn't be further from the truth. We see God's forgiveness and justice all throughout the scripture. And, and, and it shows in, in the book of Micah that all along, even amidst so much corruption and sin, God provides hope and God provides forgiveness, even amongst all of that. And, and I guess people just ignore those passages, you know, when they try to say those types of things that, that God's not the same in both testaments. 
I see the same God. I see a God who's compassionate and loving and forgiving and just. That's who I see. He's always been patient. He's always been kind. He's always been holy and good. He's always been that way, and he always will be, and he's that for you and me. And you know what? He was, a, he was providing a hope for his people. They were going to go into exile and be punished, but he was giving them a hope that this is, they're going to be delivered, and they're going to have a shepherd that's going to rule them. And he gives us a hope today, too, a hope of an everlasting life with that good shepherd. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We have a living hope. A hope that will never fade, that's always going to be there. I can't wait to be in heaven with you guys, with all of you, with everyone who's ever believed. And God provides that hope in the midst of our troubles and our pains. And, and even when we stumble in sin, we know that we can have forgiveness through Jesus Christ and a hope of heaven with him because he's cleansed all of our sins. We've got a living hope. This evening, God's still providing that hope. If you've stumbled in sin and you feel like you've wandered away, if, you have, if you're in trouble sometimes and you, you feel like you don't have that hope, God's still providing it. We still have a living hope. It's never going to fade. We've got a home in heaven with him forever. And I know you want to be there. If you need to make your life right, you do that tonight. If you never become a part of this kingdom that Micah prophesied about, and that is still here today, we'd love for you to become a part of it today. If we could help you in any way, please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.